Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. So remember how we talked about uh, Georgia and SCOTUS and copyright and there were lots of weeds to be gotten into? Uh, and, yes, I do recall that. And yes. we had, uh, I think we had a discussion about the fairness and unfairness of publishing and all the other kind of stuff. So for our listeners, we have an extra special treat um, because we went out and got the copyright librarian to come and talk to us. So that's Hillary Miller. She's the scholarly communications librarian um, at VCU Libraries. And she's going to talk to us today more in depth about I didn't even know there was a copyright clause to the to the Constitution. I should have known because this morning when I said, Hillary's going to talk about like copyright and he goes, oh, like the copyright clause. He starts naming off where it is and all that kind of stuff. I should have known. Um, so welcome, Hillary. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here and actually to be back because we have sort of talked uh, before post office specifically, but the reason I got into that was all about nerding out over copyright. So, yeah, you came and talked to us about stamps. And for anybody who hasn't listened to that episode, it's one of my oh, favorites. It's, so. one of, it's one of our best po podcast episodes. It yes. is utterly informative and hilarious. <laughs> okay. So, you should go listen because Hillary's awesome. Yeah. So, Hillary, um, I'm about to ruin your awesome here because. I have so many questions. Um, actually, I'm not going to ruin your awesome. I'm going to enhance your awesome with my questions. So, all right. Everything in the federal government, the federal government produces is in the open domain, and we can all use it all the time, and there's no such thing as copyright, right? Well. <laughs> okay. Listeners can't see her, but she's laughing. She's doing the actual physical version of LOL. You're, you're, you're part of the way, right? That is, that is often the way that it is described, but there is a lot of um, context and times when that doesn't quite uh, legally or practically work out in that way, I would say. So you're right, you um, mentioned the open domain or public domain, which is the term that describes, it's things that never get copyright protection. So for example, works of the federal government are just not eligible to be protected by copyright. And you guys talked a lot about this already. Uh, that also is things where copyright protection has expired. It's just past the length of its life and it's fallen into the public domain is sometimes how it's described. Um, but there are some exceptions to the federal government works. So um, in terms of uh, contractors and, and things, sometimes those works will not be uh, in the public domain. And that's basically if the contractor working with the government can secure in their contract the right to keep the copyright for those works. And that does happen. But the lar I was, large swaths of things that the federal government produces uh, do not get copyright protection. There are also some exceptions for, uh, and, I, and I work on this stuff too, things that the, copy, the federal government funds 
sometimes get copyright protection. Um, an example of that is all of the research that is funded out of, you know, National Institutes of Health or all of these other major government funding bodies. Uh, when that research is published in the form of articles, that copyright uh, stays with the author, although it is usually instantly transferred to publishers as well. So that's a, another big area, I would say, of government-related stuff that does get copyright protection. But does... I'm sorry, oh, go ahead, Neil. Sorry, Augie. Um, so if you work on an NIH grant and you come up with stuff, isn't there the requirement that it does get published somewhere? Like yes, and there is that, and that's been over the past ten or so years becoming more and more common. The NIH kind of started that. Most of the other major uh, federal government funders are picking up on that. That's called uh, public access. Sometimes, so what they say is that you have to make that um, publicly accessible usually with some delay after when it's published. That's usually so publishers can kind of recoup costs. So a standard for like NIH would be you have to put up um, a version of the article within a year of it being published uh, through uh, PubMed Central is where most of those are gathered. But it's interesting because it's as opposed to some European models, it's public access, not open access, uh, which would imply that the work is not just um, protected by copyright, but made available under an open license that doesn't just let you look at the thing freely available online, but it actually gives you the rights to download it and share it and build on it. Uh, so the version we have here is just put it up so it's free for someone to look at. Yeah, I mean, and this gets at one of the big issues, Nia, in regards to copyright laws in general. I mean, if you think about the word, copyright it means the right to copy okay who has the right to copy right now that seems to be pretty straightforward oh hey i got the i have the right to copy something well then there's a whole bunch of context surrounding that because just as hillary you know pointed out there's a difference between public access meaning i can read it okay um, and I can think about it. I might use it in another function versus, okay, other kinds of access, okay? Um, can I look at it and then incorporate it into something that I do, okay? Well, depending on the contract or the terms in which something was produced for the government, you may or may not have the right to do the latter. Does that make sense? So if somebody took a photograph in a, in a government <clears throat> sponsored grant, you might not, you can look at the photograph, but you might not be able to add it to your book because the copyright belongs to a person and you have to get permission from them or you have to pay them or combination thereof. Yep in yes. order to use that photograph. A lot of people yes. think, oh, I could go to the National Gallery and I can take their, their catalog and use those pictures, but those pictures are actually owned by the people who took those pictures. So you can't just take the catalog and use it, like put it into your own stuff without permission. Okay, let's go back to the uh, stamp episode for just a moment. Remember the discussion about the statute 
Statue of Liberty? Yes. Okay. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the picture that was not the actual Statue of Liberty was a picture of a different thing altogether that looked like the Statue of Liberty, right? There, yes. is, there was actually a registered copyright for the Statue of Liberty. Okay. If you, if you go to the history of copyrights in the United States, there actually was a registered copyright for the Statue of Liberty. Okay. Okay. Now, and I imagine Hillary is going to get to this, but I mean, you know, part of the issue here is the first copyright law passed by Congress said that somebody who created, say, for instance, wrote a book, right? Initially, they received copyright protection for 14 years, which meant that if anybody else wanted to copy it, use it, quote from it, and make money on it, they had to pay, okay, a royalty to the owner of that copyright. But then Congress extended copyright protection to 28 years plus a 14-year renewal. Then later, Congress went ahead and extended it to life of the author plus 50 years, okay? So not only if you wrote a book, Nia, could you accrue copyright royalties, but your heirs could. Yeah, I've heard that that's referred to as the Disney rules, right? That, that Walt Disney, Walt, the, the company was trying to protect Mickey Mouse, was trying to protect more their copyright on Mickey Mouse. And so they encouraged Congress to change, to extend copyright over and over. That is what I've heard. Yes. Well, there, no, you're right. There is a lot of lobbying from major players in creative industries on this. And actually one step further, I'll go, Augie, they extended that by 20 more years. And that, that was a decision that was Yes, that, and that went to the Supreme Court yes. in 2003. And this is one of my, whew, Love RBG authored the majority opinion in Eldred v. Ashcroft, which said, yeah, you can do it 20 more years. And actually, because the clause in, in the Constitution about copyright says limited times, it says that uh, limited is up to the discretion of Congress. As long as there is, it's not forever, there's no limit to how long that limit can be. So disappointing. And it made me, it makes me upset because again, this by securing for limited times to authors these exclusive rights, that's the way that we're achieving the purpose of the copyright clause, which is promoting the progress of science and the useful arts. And that just means knowledge and um, useful arts are like things you could patent. Um, it's not the purpose. So the fact that the limited time can actually have no limit as long as it does eventually and it could be a hundred years it could be a thousand years and apparently that is the interpretation that scotus has made and, 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 and you called it the disney rule right but if you look at for instance those who uh do works within entertainment right music books movies etc right there's a big difference between the corporations like a disney or the singer-songwriter who's, you know, writing songs and performing them at a bar, okay? Because that may be their only, you know, if you will, 
uh, 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 thing that they get paid for, right? So, you know, those, you know, that is their life's work, right? So it gets really, really complicated because also in the late uh, 90s, uh, 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 Congress went ahead and said that there are safe harbors for online service providers. So for instance, you know, if YouTube goes ahead and uh, shows a video, somebody uh, posts a video on YouTube where they go ahead and use somebody else's use of work, YouTube can't be sued. Yes, but YouTube will pull it down if there's a, like I know that the music industry regularly contests videos on YouTube and YouTube pulls them down and then the two people, YouTube then steps out of it and says, you guys have to work this out amongst yourselves. Yes, with the- The creators, yeah. I think, generally just pull the music out because it's easier to strip out whatever it was than it is to try to fight the company. Is that right, Hillary? That's right, and ultimately that dispute process that YouTube steps back from, uh, the, the copyright owner has the upper hand in that because it can go back with multiple, no, this is okay, no, it's not okay. It's ultimately the copyright owner who gets to make the final call to say no. And then you get a strike against your account. Uh, and if you get too many of those, you get kicked off of YouTube. So it's not, yeah, it's not necessarily a, a uh, even fight there. But well, the, you, no, what you said about- even fight though, right? Because if I make a Mickey Mouse doll and I sell it on Etsy, um, I will get shut down. I will get shut down by Disney eventually because somebody at Disney eventually, because some, there's someone whose job it is to look at Etsy and make sure that none of the stuff that's being sold on there is competitive in some yes. way. And what uh, you mentioned about the, that law about the safe harbors, it's the Digital Millennium Copyright Act or DMCA. So people may be familiar with this if you have ever tried to find, let's say, um, free versions of movies or television shows or something online. And you see at the bottom of the Google page where it says search results have been removed by the DMCA. That's okay. what it's talking about there. So the reason that YouTube does that, the reason that Etsy has a process for Disney to shut you down, shut your little mouse dolls down, is that's under that law that all you referenced, they have to set up a process for copyright owners to request takedown notices and to dispute infringements. Um, otherwise, they can be sued. Okay, so that's why they do That's it. how YouTube protects itself. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's how I assume iTunes protects itself is, yeah. uh, if, we're, if we're told that this is, that this violates copyright, we will pull it down and let those people discuss it amongst themselves. Yes, because they don't want to be, you know, they don't want to get involved in that. They're not usually going to take the risk of standing up for someone's right to fair use, for example, which is a part of copyright law that says there are certain uses people can make of works that do not require permission or payment to the copyright owner because they are, well, they're fair. And it's actually one of the really nebulous parts of copyright law because it doesn't tell you what those are. It says, here are some factors to help you analyze when something is fair use. And again, the issue there is that the, you can declare a fair use, you can make the use, the copyright owner can say, I think this is infringement and take you to court. Uh, and that is also, as we mentioned, this is all uh, 
down to the Constitution. So these are federal courts. So if you are an individual creator and you're getting sued by a major corporation and going to federal court, it's really unbalanced. Hillary, give, can you give us uh, an example of a, a traditional or standard fair use? Yes, um, pretty much everything that your students or students we work with uh, in the libraries do when they're writing research papers. Um, when they are quoting short excerpts of um, other maybe scholarly works or even creative works, maybe they're embedding some images or some video because they're providing a contextual scholarly analysis or a critique of the work. Um, that is almost always fair use. And the, the reasons are, you know, the purpose of it is non-commercial. It's for research and scholarly purposes to provide a critique of the original work. Uh, usually the amount is pretty small, and that is an important part of fair use. They're just quoting small portions. Um, and yeah, that, those are, I would say, are the two kind of drivers behind that. But that's a classic example. And I will say fair use does mention uh, research and uh, commentary, news reporting, educational, um, purposes. educational purposes. Yeah, okay. it's it's basically the way that the First Amendment, the right to free speech, is protected within copyright law. Because the idea is that someone should not be able to sue you for writing a bad review of their book that includes some <laughs> excerpts in it. Um, <laughs> that would right? be because, because they could say, yeah, you, they could shut down anyone's negative speech about their creative work or their work right uh, if the, they the, could sue them for infringement there's a really famous um uh, uh contest which is about the worst opening line of a book yes and it's based on the guy who and i can't remember his name who wrote it was a dark and dark and stormy night, night. Mm -hmm. yeah, that guy um and if he could sue because you couldn't use that phrase it would be tragic because that phrase has come to mean a very specific thing in culture that nobody's making money off of, but it is, it, I don't know, it would be sad if he could keep people from making it because they're making fun of him. Um, yes. And I know he's dead and he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be covered in copyright. I, I'm amazed that Machiavelli didn't see this coming and figure out a way to cover his stuff in copyright, um, considering how brilliant he was with everything else. But I, I do have a, a, just a quick comment for listeners. Um, just because you can use that work in your research paper does not mean you should not cite that work in your research paper. <laughs> yes. Always cite that work and give credit where credit is due. Being able to use it and quote it doesn't mean that you can't, that you shouldn't give credit. Yes. Sorry, I'm a librarian. Please cite <laughs> your source. It's very important that other people be able to go to the original and one, give that person their due but also that they see whether you've quoted it properly and all that other kind of stuff. So yeah. I just, I, I've heard that argument made. Why are citations important? It's all yeah. in fair use. And I'm like, oh, nah, that is not how this works. That's no. And our code works. That's not how professors work. Yeah. Yeah. Although let me let me muddy the waters a little bit on this because I love to do this because people kind of go, what, what, what? <laughs> you, it's scholarly practice. And, and to cite materials. And if you don't do it, you might um, fail or you might get, you know, draw, uh, you know, 
pulled up to the like honor violation for, for plagiarism or something. But you wouldn't be infringing copyright necessarily because US copyright law does not uh, provide a right of attribution to creators. Really? So if you were quoting from someone and it was a small amount and it was uh, you know, enough to qualify for a fair use, um, yeah, that, that's, you don't have to cite. So actually, you, in theory, you could take you know, tiny little sentences from lots of people's books and write your own new book and pass it off as your own, total plagiarism, uh, not copyright infringement. You're probably not gonna. Uh, you're probably not gonna be appointed to any important office no. to do that. I know. You. Yeah, and I put that into not, Google. It's gonna come it. up with you know all the sources, but mm -hmm. would not recommend it because. And part of it, you know, if you get if you do get sued for fair use, one of the things that is not really in the law but has been looked at in court cases before is were you acting in good faith? So you know, if you were both borderline fair use maybe infringement and you were clearly trying to plagiarize and act in bad faith that that might weigh against you a little bit um, but it's yeah u.s copyright law is different in that respect other other nations like france for example have these things called moral rights and that's even more expansive it's not just the right to be attributed it can be um the right to push back against the way you are depicted or your work is depicted well so, in, in you know, to Hillary's point, and you've seen this sometimes in copyright cases dealing with uh, the use of uh, music or lyrics from songs, where an artist is accused by another artist of violating the latter artist's copyright, okay, or by the heirs of a copyright owner, okay, and one of the defenses um, that is typically used by the allegedly, you know, the alleged violator is I was not aware of the music or did not know of the lyrics. Now that becomes a rather, you know, fact specific, if you will, um, uh, uh, process in a court case. Yeah. But nevertheless, okay, if you didn't know under US copyright law, you know, that's one of those rare times where it's not ignorance of the law, it's that you're just ignorant of other copyrighted material, right? Yeah, yeah <laughs> and that's actually, that's a good point because it's entirely possible. What copyright protects is the unique way that you express um, facts or, or, or your thoughts. Um, or your ideas, but it doesn't protect the underlying ideas or facts. So yeah, two people could take the same writing prompt and somehow write the exact same, exact same poem or short story, same words and everything. And if they didn't work together, they didn't look at each other's works or, you know, copy from each other, they both get copyright in that work. That's their own unique original creative expression um that would be pretty hard to do but you can see why yeah like in music and other things lots of copyright cases would come up where someone thinks they're being infringed on because you know the alleged infringer is just doing work that's really similar to theirs um you know there there are limits to creativity um we're often borrowing ideas 
from other people and building on them or working on the same underlying facts or you know cultural um concepts and so yeah so is, i mean mia yeah. you point out the rather you know clear behavioral norm within higher education that you should cite your sources right because otherwise it's plagiarism um but you know in terms of copyright law if you don't know your source are you actually violating the law well and apparently not apparently you can write your paper by saying they say quote and then just make <laughs> something up uh, yeah i uh, or you know there's something that you heard from your mom um i'm not sure that that's a well anyway that's a whole different can of worms we could open that can of worms but we shouldn't um i'm just side noting for anybody who's thinking they could use that as a defense nope with a professor it's nope. not gonna fly nope yes nope says the professor the the uh <clears throat> scholarly communications librarian shaking her head no mm -hmm. like it's not you just don't try it don't don't just just cite your source it's just easier to do and if you don't know how we'll help you at the library um okay so so then that brings up a, a question to me or if if you don't mind me asking <laughs> So I last time we talked, um, Augie and I talked about uh, Georgia, the SCOTUS um, ruling in Georgia. We were talking about the sort of the government edicts doctrine, right? This idea that your work can't be, if, if you're working for the government, whatever you're doing when you're doing that job can't be, um, can't be copyrighted or can't be, right, isn't protected under that. Right. Yes. And, but it seems like to me there's, there's, um, there's, there are exceptions to that, right? Because, or maybe, I guess, no, I guess what I'm thinking is the material itself can be packaged in such a way that it would be copyrighted. Yeah, because, Nia, one of the points that, or uh, Hillary, one of the points that Nia and I focused on was if you've ever looked at annotations of law and of court cases, it's a heck of a lot of work and it's got a lot of value, okay, to it, simply because somebody else, a reputable, if you will, expert has spent a lot of time, and, and this was at the heart of the Georgia case, okay? Because the laws themselves fall under the you know, the, 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 the government edicts doctrine, right? This is the production of laws for the public, okay? Uh, the law is not owned by anyone, okay? But one of the things that we kind of sort of got wiggly on at the end, okay, <laughs> was, you know, th there's a lot of work that goes into providing annotations of not only laws, but then also of regulations that flow from the laws, but also court cases about the laws. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and so like things like annotations, when it, when it comes to government works, annotations, um, introductions, contextual information, all this commentary and stuff, you're right, it, it can receive copyright protection. Um, it depends on, well, and that, right, the Georgia case made this, um, you know, I would say a little more complex or a got into some of the complexities of, but it depends on who does that work 
and do they do the work in a way that adds enough original creative copyrightable elements to it so that it receives copyright protection so in other in other cases you know it's been held before and i think y'all talked about what west law maybe or lexus nexus who was it that um you know lost a bunch of cases basically saying no pagination is not copyright protectable you can't you can't yes you can't add page numbers to something well and west and get copyright protection for the tries to copyright the citations that's yes exactly what it was they were Mm -hmm. they're like no no those are westlaw citations and everybody's like dude that's how we all find the case like that's what we all call it you can't copyright that that's like copywriting the word the exactly or yeah or the phone book with the alphabet this is just the way that the process works you alphabetize something you search in this way right you didn't come up with this like this is not you know you can't copyright the abc song you, you know what i mean like what's wrong with you but you can copyright things where you have made a database and you've made the right the searching like like what you're doing when you're doing that are you are you copywriting the way you're getting at the material since the material itself is not copyright so here's a, a couple of layers to that especially in an online context now you can get copyright in your arrangement of things um so a, another example this might be a cookbook you cannot copyright the concept of a recipe you can't stop other people for right making the same food with the same amount you can copyright um no hummus the, for you. right the very particular <laughs> flowery possible way you describe cooking you know if you've seen blog posts where they add like five extra paragraphs about how this dish means so much to them and they make it every year and you're like give me the recipe scroll 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 um you could copyright a cookbook because you have picked certain recipes to go in it and you have put them in a certain order and you have given chapter headings and introductions um, but those all right those underlying facts you can't really do so a database you could because but the copyright is limited to your arrangement of the materials or headings or things that you create around that software is copyrightable because it's code and it's oh. a weird case. You can get both patents because software does things. It's an invention that, you know, that does things. I'm not describing that well. Patents are not an area that are good for me, but, uh, but it's also code and it's written and it's text. And that means it's copyrightable. So if you make a database and uh, you have a particular way of searching and all of that is code based, that gets copyright too. May I interrupt uh, for just a moment, Hillary? Yeah. For those of you who are wondering what the big deal is about uh, the current Supreme Court Supreme Court case of Google versus Oracle, it's about Oracle's copyright of software. Okay, that basically almost every cell phone uses. Okay, so that they're actually are compatible with other cell phones. Okay, and it's about software, right? And, and 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 it's got a huge financial, shall we say, consequence or repercussion, because if the Supreme Court uh, affirms the lower court's ruling, Google's gonna owe, according to some estimates, 
billions of dollars, okay? And it's all about software code. Yep. And you might be thinking, well, how is that, <laughs> you know, you know, literary and musical, et cetera, but it's how they wrote it. So there could be compatibility, okay, amongst various cell phones. Well, and somebody had to do the work. I mean, somebody had to, you, when you write code, you write code and then you run it and it doesn't do what you want it to do. So you have to go back and figure out where it's broken. And I know people who read code um, for fun and pleasure, uh, not really, for their jobs. Um, there's no such thing as fun and pleasure code reading as far as I can tell. There's code writing for fun and pleasure. But uh, the reading for mistakes, those people make a lot of money because that is tedious work to figure out where the mistake is, what, you know, what line in the 7,000 lines of code is wrong to make it break. And it's almost always not the line you were thinking according to them. But I, I guess what I'm asking, is, we were talking about publishers and having some sympathy. I know it pains me to say that as a librarian, sympathy for publishers um, in the sense that they are investing some um treasure right time and people and whatever in making things more easily findable and anybody who's used uh i hate to pick on lex um the old lexus nexus the newer um is much easier to use but the old one was horrible to use right it was it was not intuitive it was not kind and we've all opened databases i think in our professional lives where we've said this doesn't make any sense i don't know how to even use this thing but but they that work of doing of making it easier to find stuff seems like that should be rewardable at least in some in some way yeah and I, you know and i can sympathize with that because the work of publishing or building websites or databases is huge work it takes a lot of resources it takes a lot of really skilled people um, to do that work and to maintain it so it's not it's not just that it, everything's on the internet and it's easy to do now it's basically cost nothing it is not the case what i i, I think two things to like draw distinctions between for copyright um, copyright is meant to protect the again the unique the original creative works the creation of those works it's not meant to just reward people for working really hard to make new things if that makes sense um, and this the, the distinction here so there's a concept in copyright law um, it's called sweat of the brow uh, and basically it has been pointed out and in a particular um, SCOTUS case as well, copyright is not meant to reward sweat of the brow. And this was under the uh, actually the example I mentioned before about the phone book. Someone worked really hard to pull together a lot of facts about people's names and addresses and uh, their phone numbers and they alphabetized it and they that you can't copyright you can't copyright protect facts and the fact that you put something in alphabetical order is not an original unique element because it's the alphabet it's not you know they didn't right they didn't invent invent the concept of alphabetization 
I think, sorry. No, no, that's good. They're not alphabetizing. Yeah, right, right. They're not Phoenician. They didn't come up with the alphabet, so. Yeah, and so, and so they said in that case, no, copyright is not meant to reward sweat of the brow. It's about the creative elements or expression that you create or add to something. And so even, even I, I would say in the, the example with the people who are doing the work of the coding, um, which is actually a super creative field. You have to be really creative in the way that you write and design things. Um, but it's not that really hard work that goes into it that is protected by copyright. It's those creative elements. And so the work that publishers do, if it were purely just to compile and make better digital versions of government documents and put them into a database in a really you know, good way that makes it easily searchable. Um, again, what they're limited to in copyright protection is the software, maybe the design of how they arrange the materials. Um, if they did add in some more annotations or, or commentary or things like that, but it's limited. Um, the copyright protection for some things like that you might say is thin is the way it's described sometimes because it's just so close to just being facts. So. Hillary, can we go back to something, a distinction that you made earlier in the podcast? Um, and the reason why I bring this up is because a lot of the work that I do uh, requires me to use this. Uh, and that is um, public versus open access. And what I'm having in mind um, is uh, PACER, uh, which is public access to court electronic records. Yes. Now, a huge debate among the scholarly community that I work in, uh, constitutional law scholars, uh, judicial politics scholars, is being able to access court documents, which almost, you know, today almost exclusively are you know available electronically? In fact, it's in many in many court at many courthouses now. Uh, it's much more difficult to get hard copy access than it is to get electronic. But with Pacer, okay, um, you know you have to pay a fee. Okay, could you go into that in a little bit more depth? Um, yeah. Um, this idea of public versus open access. I think is is not one that many people understand the difference. Yeah, so when I when I talk about open access, I will say I, there's a very specific definition in my field, um, scholarly communication or in libraries, which is about um, not just can you get to it, right? Is it accessible in terms of looking at it? But does it come with um, extended rights? Um, to use the thing. So the most common way that happens is in addition to a work being copyrighted, you um, attach an open license to it. Creative Commons is um, the most popular set of open licenses. And what that does is it just proactively tells people, yes, you can access this work, but you also get the rights to make a copy of it and edit the work and share it with others. And in some cases, even make a commercial use to it, depending on which license you pick. Um, so when, for under public access, um, there are 
things like PACER, they guarantee in a sense that you have access to the documents. Um, but kind of similar to it being short of open access, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that that access is going to um, be free of cost. It doesn't necessarily mean that that access is going to be easy in some cases. Um, and I would say that just because something we're talking about, you know, things in the public domain, just because something is in the public domain does not mean that the creator or whoever controls access to that work is under an obligation to make that work available to you okay. or everyone online or available in a usable format and again or available for free so it's a you know pacer is an example but i'll say libraries and archives um do this sometimes too or, or have done in the past with physical copies is um the thing may be in the public domain, but we control access to it. So in some very restrictive, you know, archives, you have to, you know, um, request permission to look at the document. You might have to pay money for uh, someone to make a physical copy or make a copy of a physical object for you that's in the public domain. Um, and in the best of cases, I would say that is truly because it costs money to do that work. And they need that money to continue maintaining the public domain database or, or collection or whatever. You know, PACER is an interesting example you brought up because they have been sued multiple times, like class action lawsuits, claiming that they are um, overcharging generally um, based on the way they calculate their billing, but also that they are using fees that they get inappropriately and actually unlawfully. So they're not just collecting the fees that they need to build the database and make things available. They're using it for all kinds of other purposes that aren't related to that. Yeah, because the, un the underlying logic of, for instance, a government chart, you know, a library charging you to go ahead and copy materials, okay, is the same that you would see with the Freedom of Information Act, right? Yes, yeah. Um, yes, the public, per the Freedom of Information Act, has access to the material. But the government agency to maintain the data and be able to copy it and provide it incur costs. So they should be able to go ahead, okay, and cover their costs. Yeah. Okay. And I understand that, right? Um, you know, but part of the difficulty, for instance, with PACER, and I'm familiar with some of the lawsuits that you just mentioned, Hillary, is this idea that there are you know, for instance, poor people who might want access to court documents that because of the cost won't be able to access those documents. So then they go into court and they're at a disadvantage, okay, uh, with, you know, whoever they are suing or whoever sued them because the opposition, the other litigant actually was able to afford the costs um, you know, that, that is charged by the, the PACER system uh, for the documents. Um, so that's, you know, part of, you know, uh, 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 why I asked the question. Nia, you got something on your mind? I do. I, <laughs> I, I'm torn because, again, I understand why an agency would need to cover its costs. 
but I, like Hillary, am aggravated by the idea that they don't have to give you things in a usable format. Um, what leaps to mind to me is the census. If you ask for raw data from the census, they won't give you data like with people's identifying information. There's no way you can get that. That's protected um, under about 57,000 laws. Um, so, so anybody who's thinking that the census data that they just filled out that can be gotten, it can't. But there are broad swaths of data that they can get, right? How many people live in an area, you know, what the educational entertainment, uh, attainment of those folks is in general, that sort of thing. And if you email the Census Bureau and you say, I would like the 2010 census, please, they say, sure. And they send it to you on disks with some horrible software that you have to download. Like it's not your friend and it's not, and, and, they meet the letter of the law by saying, we gave you the data, but it's like somebody handing you, when you say, I'd like a skein of yarn, and they give it to you all unwound and say, good luck with that. They just give you a pile of yarn <laughs> and you have to turn it into something useful. And I guess that, so, so part of me understands why publishers who are turning that into something useful or something easy to use would want some um, compensation. Yeah, compensation. Yeah. Thank you. But then I look at the costs of the packages of some of the publishers and I think, oh, now you just need to sit down because all you're doing is repackaging the work of other people and you're making far too much money to do that. But I suppose that's probably an argument for another day. Uh, we'll invite you back, Hillary, to talk about the big, the big publisher packages someday when none of our jobs depend on that <laughs> uh, in our in our retirement. But I do want to ask you in our last uh, few minutes because I know you have to go soon. But I'm imagining that because this is copyright and therefore it involves the law, there has to have been some crazy stuff that people have attempted to copyright like i know <laughs> i know that that for instance that there are people who try to copyright bibles and there's a part of me that's like you can't copyright the bible that well that, that cat is out of the bed no Oh, you, oh, you can copyright the Bible. You can. Yes, you yes. can copyright your own translation of the Bible. And again, your annotations and commentary, you know, in your own version of the Bible. You can, maybe it's not even your translation. Maybe it's your particular, you know, uh, remix of the Bible. <laughs> I remix. <laughs> Who knows? Bible. You know, like, but. Uh, Jefferson style where I take out <laughs> mentions of Jesus. I think, didn't he cut that? I'm pretty sure he cut those out of his Bible or one of his Bibles, um, which would be a mess. And you yeah. wouldn't do that because paper was really valuable in his day. But yeah. anyway, um, okay, so I could remix the Bible yeah. and, uh, oh, all right. Yeah. Okay. But again, but I would say, again, this is probably a case where the copyright may be a little bit thin, right? Because maybe there are only three accepted interpretations of a particular term in Greek and you pick one and if someone else picks the same one, you can't say you copied me. You both copied from the same original source, right? Uh, so you have to, you only get protection in the, your unique aspects of the translation. You can't stop other people from translating the Bible. Okay. Oh. 
Yeah. Well, I'm assuming that with music, at least, there's only so many notes. So, yes. So what you're copywriting is your order of them. Yes. And, and all sorts of other music, you know what I mean? Um, aspects of music. This is a really interesting one. Maybe we'll get to talk about this in the future. Um, I, I have seen uh, people kind of posing the question, you know, what would happen if an artificial intelligence program um, were set to run to write every single possible melody, to write every single combination of every possible yeah, every possible combination of notes. Wow. Does the person who designed the AI get copyright in all of that? And then can they stop people? <laughs> anyway, totally theoretical copyright stuff. But like, this is a question we're starting to get into with new technology is like, if you, yeah, if you make an A, if you design the AI and it starts producing things that are copyrightable, can you be a copyright troll and just sit on all of that and force other people to pay you for it? Maybe. We don't know. Although one could argue that you didn't make it, the AI made it, and the AI owns control, which That's, eventually the AI would would come to life and destroy. But the then, if you own the I've patent, this movie. But Nia, if you own the patent under U.S. patent law, mm -hmm. then everything that the patent produces is mine. Oh it's, yeah, it's an ugly question. Yeah, and it hasn't been answered yet. I would I would say the only the closest thing we have to answering that is not related to AI, but is related to that monkey who took a picture of himself with a camera. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and the photographer said, well, I was there. So I get the copyright. And I think PETA or someone else said, no, the monkey gets the copyright. copyright. And I think the court was like, no, no one, no one gets the copyright. It was taken by a monkey. I'm sorry. It was a happy accident. Yes. Uh, although, uh, uh -huh, that's it. Well, but then that becomes into an argument of sentience and all that other, which, right. which that's a giant can of worms, which we shall not open today because there's not sufficient beer to cover that topic. Yeah. Um, but can, can you, are there any sort of weirdo cases that you think, really? But it's also kind of funny. I mean, what do you yeah. guys at your copyright conventions when you're all sitting around after everything's over and you're yeah. you know you're having your margaritas and you're hanging out what do you what well i did so i did find one example uh that i wanted to share while i was kind of doing some prep work for this because i thought maybe as a you know a hook for this i wanted to find times where the federal government has been sued or involved in copyright cases. And there and so there are some. So the, okay. the thing with this, if you want to sue the federal government, you have to go to a very specific court, okay. federal claims court. Um, so I encourage people to go look at the, the, the decisions coming out of that related to copyright. So wait. this happens more than you might think. Wait, 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 wait. Pause. So this is, is federal, I'm sorry, what is it, federal? Claims court. Mm -hmm. And is that just for copyright or is that for... No, no. No, 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 no. Congress created it uh, after the New Deal because prior to the New Deal, if you sued the federal government because you claimed the government harmed you in any way, Congress actually had to pass individual <laughs> laws to compensate you. Wow. So it was only okay. then that they went ahead and they bureaucratized, if you will, the suing of the federal government by <laughs> creating a special court known as the Federal Claims Court. Okay, right? and that's yes. for all lawsuits. 
That's right. Okay, okay. so Hillary has violations of the Copyright Act. Okay. Yes, and that is because the federal government in the in the U.S. Code has said has waived their sovereign immunity for copyright yes. infringement claims. So they've said, yes, you can sue us for this, which I, good good for them for opening that door, I guess. So I was looking through some of these, and it's you know some things you might expect, like most recent years, a lot of lawsuits related to uh, software copyright, related to uh, defense and intelligence agencies. Um, the couple of cases related to the post office, as we talked about, uh, where the artist rights were, they sued the, the government for putting their works on a postage stamp and they won. Uh, and then there was this really interesting one and I'd love to get thoughts on how common this is for non-copyright cases. I found one called uh, Hale v. USA that was dismissed last year, very, very quickly, uh, where this guy was suing the government in Mainly, I think he was claiming that the IRS was running some kind of fraud, uh, financial fraud by collecting taxes from him, which they obviously tossed that out. But the reason it was copyright related is he also sued them for copyright infringement because they used his name in the process of collecting these taxes. <laughs> and I was so glad that I came across this. And I want to ask, like, how... How common is this? I mean, there's only one place to go to sue the, the federal government. So like if, if I just hang out on this website, am I going to find a lot of zany, weird, quickly dismissed lawsuits? La Augie's laughing at I think yes. I'm guessing you are going to find a lot of zany. I have told students over the years, if you want to see how creative slash crazy uh americans actually are you gotta look at the docket for the federal claims <laughs> court because the government gets sued for all kinds of alleged injuries okay and they just just blows your mind just yeah. right it is funny stuff but i mean these are people who claim that they've been harmed okay <laughs> Um, and to the government's credit, it was a short decision, but it, it answered him point by point and yes. cited, I thought the copyright one was a little weak, to be honest, though, because they, <laughs> they said it was, you think it was a little weak? No, I thought the government's answer to it was a little weak, actually, because uh, they, oh, okay. so they said, so they said he, you know, he, he claimed that we uh, infringed on his name and, um, uh, you know, upon further questioning, he did admit that his name was not copyrighted. And we reference here that um, registration of a copyright is required to seek this kind of damages, um, as if as if the fact that he hadn't registered his name was the reason when in fact, you cannot copyright names or short phrases. So I, I you know, clearly it was ripe for dismissal, but I think they missed uh, a little bit of finer points of copyright law there. Here's here's me critiquing the <laughs> U.S. Federal Claims Court for the way that they well, handle these cases. The, the, I love it. I, so you can't, are you saying you can't copyright a name? No, it's too short. You can't copyright words or phrases. You could trademark your name and people do, you know, obviously celebrities do that. Okay. Uh, but, but that's yeah. different. By the way, we trademarking is different than copyright and we will invite you back. Yeah, if, you're, if your name is your business, yeah, you can okay. trademark it. We need to bring uh, Hillary back just to discuss trademarks because okay. there is a whole bunch of Supreme Court case law on this 
and it is some crazy, funny, weird, okay, stuff that touches upon the First Amendment, mm -hmm. okay, etc. Okay, we need to bring her back for trademarks. I would love to talk about that because some because people frequently confuse the two as well. They That's think right. I need to get a copyright for this. I need to infringe this when it's all, it's all trademark. So awesome. Well, then we will have you back. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today, Hillary. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. I love getting to nerd out about copyright. So I'm very excited to come back. Yay. Thanks, Hillary. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU libraries. Special thanks to the workshop for technical assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.